this edition of the Thoracic Surgery Resident Association's podcast. The opinions expressed in this podcast are provided for teaching purposes only and should not be applied directly to patient care. Hi, my name is Alex Nissen. I'm a second-year traditional cardiothoracic resident here at Emory University. It's my pleasure to be joined today by Dr. Brent Keeling. Uh, Dr. Keeling is a graduate of the Emory Cardiothoracic Surgery Program, currently an, assess- an associate professor in the division, as well as the current president of the Pulmonary Embolism Response Team, or PERT Consortium, which is a national multi-specialty organization that guides care and research for PE treatment. Uh, to get this uh, episode started, I thought that we could sort of introduce the subject of massive PE with a case discussion. Uh, so, Dr. Keeling, thanks for joining us. And uh, the patient that we're talking about today is a 53-year-old male with a prior remote history of DVT treated with six months of Eliquis. He has a remote history of renal cancer status post-nephrectomy, and he's presented to the emergency department complaining of acute shortness of breath. He's found to be tachycardic to the 130s with a blood pressure of 95 over 50, mild troponin elevation of 0.25, and a CTPE study that shows a large saddle embolism with extension into multiple pulmonary segments. His RV to LV ratio on the CT scan is about one-to-one, and they obtain a stat echo down in the emergency department with the evidence of RV strain. So, Dr. Keeling, when you're called about a patient like this, um, could you talk to us a little bit about maybe your, your initial surgical evaluation and how kind of the PERT team functions at Emory, especially with considerations for massive versus submassive PE patients? Yeah, thanks, Alex. Um I just finished up my presidency with the PERT Consortium, so I'm actually the immediate past president, but that's neither here nor there. Um, so, yeah, unfortunately, you know, all all of the, from a, from a surgical spe- perspective, all of the risk stratification and schemes involved with pulmonary embolism are based on physiology and not anatomy. And so when we talk about things like submassive and massive, the Europeans actually use high risk, intermediate risk, and low risk, which I think is probably a little bit more clear because unfortunately in the United States, we've adopted this massive and then uh, high and low risk, submassive and then and low risk uh, scheme, which is a little bit more confusing. Massive doesn't necessarily relate to the volume of embolic material in the pulmonary circulation. It's, it's a physiologic diagnosis. And so, you know, this patient would probably fall into the category of um, intermediate risk and high high intermediate risk actually because of the elevated serum troponin and the evidence of RV strain that would place them in that um, you know in that category it, you know at Emory the per team would likely be activated for this patient and then we would get together in a multidisciplinary fashion and discuss kind of best treatment for this guy. I mean, he's pretty young with with what sounds like a pretty large embolic burden. And even though I just went on this dissertation about how there are no anatomic, uh, you know, classification schemes for pulmonary embolism, to me, I think it very much matters, um, especially in young patients with a lot of clot, we try to get as much out of it as we can. And so surgery has kind of been one of the um, modalities that we lean upon heavily to, to try and make that happen, is, again, especially in, in young patients. So, you know, if we, we were to see this patient, Emory, first of all, the, the mainstay of treatment is immediate anticoagulation, usually with unfractionated heparin. Um, 
that you can argue that if somebody's in extremis and arresting, they should get uh, IV TPA. And I think at under-resourced hospitals, that's completely acceptable. Um, ECMOs uses a first-line therapy for patients kind of arresting in, in a lot of academic centers right now. And we can certainly talk about the utilization of mechanical circulatory support for these patients. But, um, you know, immediate anticoagulation for this guy, the PER team would meet and kind of consider a number of different um, scenarios and treatments. And then, you know, hopefully we would eventually land on surgery and, and offer it to him. And really, you know, what makes somebody a good surgical candidate, um, you know, there's a nice study by Vanderbilt, out of Vanderbilt, um, a few years back, they kind of detailed that patients did well with central uh, embolic material. So anything kind of within the pericardial reflection that's since been disproven by, uh, you know, a, a different study that showed, you know, surgery is still awfully successful for patients with kind of distal right and left main PA embolic material. But, um, you know, we, we still try to operate on patients with a lot of clot and uh and take it out okay perfect thank you very much so it sounds like you know this person certainly has a number of factors in favor of um you know heading to the operating room and we'll say now that that decision's been made after the PERT team evaluation and discussion you know can you share with us kind of your your typical approach especially any kind of technical pearls potential pitfalls um starting in kind of the preoperative phase as we're getting ready to induce these patients that can be high risk of you know arrest upon induction of anesthesia Right. I mean, this guy is is tachycardic into the 130. So I am a little tachycardia, I think, is the single most um, important uh, vital sign in terms of assessing these patients. They often, you know, patients with large PEs often react like children in that they can't uh, increase their cardiac output unless they increase their heart rate. And so the higher the heart rate, the more concerned I am that they have low cardiac output because they can't get enough volume to their, to their left side. So, um, you know, I'm very wary of uh, induction of anesthesia. I'm always in the room and patients where I've got great concern, I'll often preemptively place wires in the groin such that if something were to happen during induction, I could, uh, you know, almost immediately percutaneously cannulate and commence cardiopulmonary bypass. Um, you know, failing that once induction, and I really think that induction is kind of the most dangerous point in time for these patients. Once they survive induction, I think everything else is going to go pretty smoothly. Um, I do most of these through a median sternotomy. There are minimally invasive approaches uh, described through a left anterior thoracotomy and then peripheral cannulation. Certainly, it's a viable alternative, um, but usually through a median sternotomy um, and then central cardiopulmonary bypass cannulate the aorta and usually the uh, right atrial appendage bicable cannulation is usually unnecessary unless for some reason you need to explore the right atrium remove a thrombus and transit through a pfo or, or fix what is a, a large asd or pfo or you have some something else to do um so usually it's just a central aortic and central uh, atrial cannulation Commence cardiopulmonary bypass, and I usually do these uh, normal thermic. I don't arrest the heart. Um, I've been pretty successful, and I think visualization is key. Um, if you can't adequate, adequately visualize down to the subsegmental level, then I think you do need to arrest the heart. But we do a number of different things to, to improve visualization in these patients. 
We put a attraction stitch just cephalon to the pulmonary valve. We usually use a pudgeted foroproline suture and then and pull it down to the feet, and that helps. Um, we completely mobilize the aorta and put an umbilical tape around the aorta and, and retract the aorta uh, to kind of help facilitate visualization. Um, we often use an aortic root retractor in the pulmonary arteriotomy um, because I think that that's a, a nice tool to help. We use the thoracoscopic instruments to, to reach into the pulmonary artery and, and remove clot. Um, I think the long shafted instruments are, are, are helpful. Um, I think for some of the proximal stuff, we'll just use a regular ring force, but often the thoracoscopic instruments down to the, you know, segmental and subsegmental level is helpful. Um, I switch sides of the table, so I don't like to do that in general for a cardiac operation. If I'm the operating surgeon, I'll stay on the patient's right. But, you know, for the various, for the, for both sides, I'll switch from right to left and then back. Um it's not always that we make a counter incision, you know, traditionally Trendelenburg described that you have to make an incision in the right main pulmonary artery between the SVC and the aorta. Don't always do that, um, but certainly do if there's more clot down in there or visualizations, not, not perfect. Um, and again, we can usually have the field pretty blood free. Uh, it's not uncommon that we'll stick a flexible sucker down through the pulmonary valve. Um, and then use a number of, um, you know, cardiotomy suction devices to, to clear the field of blood. Again, if you can't see, then I absolutely think that you need to arrest the heart. The other instance in which you need to arrest the heart, again, if you're, there's some sort of concomitant left-sided pathology that you need to fix, or you get in the situation where it's um, an acute on chronic situation and you have to do a thromboendarterectomy, but you should certainly know that kind of going in or have a high suspicion of that going in based on a number of preoperative factors. Perfect. That's, that's very helpful. And it sounds like um, I can guess maybe your answer to this, but say if a resident is faced with a, a patient like the one we presented and they're a little bit hypoxic, but you know, in the upper 80s to low 90s, the anesthesia team is asking if they want the patient intubated before traveling to the OR, uh, what your typical answer to that might be. Absolutely not. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, hypoxia is kind of the least of my concerns with these patients. I mean, I, I think you, you got to support them and, and certainly supplement their oxygen requirements. But um, I think that you need to be in the most controlled environment uh, you can be in for somebody like this. Yep. And that is the operating room. Absolutely. Or if you have ECMO capabilities in some other portion of your hospital, I think that'd be acceptable. But um, no, do everything you can to try and avoid intubating these patients until you're ready. Okay, absolutely. I think that that drives home a point I know you've you've taught us here at Emory is that really this is a problem of acute right ventricular outflow tract obstruction. It's a hemodynamic problem, not a, a problem of suboptimal oxygenation and ventilation. So I think that that really drives that point home. And um, in terms of a few adjuncts, you know, that are maybe written about more than they are done. Have you, or do you typically use anything like a retrograde pulmonary vein flush? I imagine not, given that these patients are typically done in a beating heart uh, manner. No, I haven't. And I don't know that I see the utility in that, frankly. Okay. And then um, how about uh, things like IVC filter placement around the time of surgery? I uh, have done it some. Used to be more aggressive with IVC filter placement um, in the kind of post-operative period. And the thought process behind that was you have a compromised right ventricle and you've, you've you know, 
unclog the drain, so to speak, but it's still not normal. And you don't want that second hit to come and, um, you know, a second pulmonary embolism. And certainly that's happened to me before. Um, but I've kind of gotten away from it. I think early and aggressive anticoagulation is kind of the hallmark of post-operative care. Um, as soon as the chest tube output is less than 100 cc's per hour, and that's usually within the first hour or two, then I'll initiate some motoseparin and kind of ramp it up from there. Okay. Um, start giving them a DOAC, you know, on post-op day one or two and, and um, have largely gotten away from IVC filters in these patients. Okay, perfect. That answered some of my my exact questions in terms of the post-operative management. That's very helpful. In terms of, um, you know, additional RV support to leave the operating room, from what I've seen, it's it's infrequent, but what is kind of your um, go-to, whether that be, you know, peripheral ECMO versus a balloon pump um, and sort of the frequency with which you need either of those? Yeah, I mean, we've, we've trended toward um, peripheral cannulation for ECMO, um, just as kind of temporary RV support. Um, we have not used um, the Protect Duo or, or really the RP Impella in this fashion. I think the RP Impella is pretty finicky. I wouldn't be opposed to using the uh, the Protect Duo system. We just haven't haven't done it. Again, our, our institutional bias is toward VA ECMO, and that's what we've used in the perioperative period to support these patients. Okay, perfect. And then otherwise, so. Obviously, we've kind of discussed the aggressive anticoagulation strategies for these patients in the immediate post-op period. We'll say that our, our patient undergoes a successful extraction of their large central clot burden. They're able to separate from CPB with you know, mild to moderate RV dysfunction on some inotropes, but without the need for any MCS. And um, once their chest tube output is, is down, um, you know, they start their, their low-dose heparin, uh, and it's up-titrated in the ICU, and they do well initially. We'll say this patient is someone that had an IVC filter placed. Um, do you have any specific timing with which you like to have that removed or otherwise surveilled? No, I don't. I mean, I think that I don't have a, a time frame, um, and it would probably vary based on the etiology of the pulmonary embolism. If it's unprovoked, you know, in a fifty-three-year-old guy without any known thrombophilia, and and uh, you know, I'd be pretty aggressive about getting it out within the first three to six months. I think, Perfect. just based on you know, all of the bad things that can happen the longer an IVC filter is in place. Um, you know, if it's for different etiology, I might reconsider, but largely I, I rely on the opinions of other people, <laughs> to be completely honest. The the hematologists usually have a pretty good sense of when these things should come out, as do the vascular surgeons. Perfect. And so, I mean, I think that that really was, you know, kind of an excellent case-based discussion with a ton of technical pearls, especially as these cases are really performed infrequently, especially at institutions that may or may not have a PERT team that's kind of established like it is here at Emory. Um, as we sort of wrap up, I just wanted to offer any opportunity for closing thoughts in terms of, you know, ways to get involved in this sort of uh, field, in this sort of research, the value of maybe being involved in or starting a PERT team, and um, any sort of learning curve that you've experienced as you've started to take these cases on. Yeah, I, I'll, I'll issue a disclaimer first, Alex, in that I've certainly described one way to manage these patients operatively. There are a number of different ways to kind of skin this cat. Some people insist on arresting the heart every time. I guess I don't buy into that just because I don't want to make a, you know, what is a compromised RV further ischemic. But at the same time, I think you're, you absolutely have to visualize what you're, what you're trying to do and you have to get all the fun out. 
uh, you know, there are a number of different ways to get involved. I think that the STS and some of the national organizations are paying more attention to pulmonary embolism. There was a session last year at the SES annual meeting on, on PE that was pretty well received. Um, there seem to be an, a growing number of surgeons who are involved in the PERT consortium. I'd urge everybody to check that if, out if, if they have interest. Um, I do think that these are pretty fun cases and, and pretty rewarding, albeit infrequent. Uh, I think they're only intimidating because you know, it's something you don't do every, you know, all the time. Um, you know, for me, there wasn't a, a huge learning curve because it's really not that hard of a case, to be honest with you. I think the learning curve is kind of being involved in a PERT and figuring out which patients you should operate on, which you shouldn't. I would caution people kind of not to get into the acute on chronic business. I think that, um, you know, the pulmonary thromboendarterectomies need to be pretty well planned out and, and almost performed and in an elective fashion, elective slash urgent. If you're, you know, trying to do that operation in an urgent fashion, I just don't think it's going to go well. So it takes some degree of judgment to, to pick out the acute on chronic patient. And I, and I think that that's probably where I've learned the most um, throughout my career. But in terms of um, a learning curve with the operation, I don't think it's that hard. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. Well, perfect, sir. Thanks so much for your time. And again, this has been uh, Dr. Brent Keeling and Alex Henson from Emory University talking about the surgical management of massive PE. Thanks, Alex.